0: The Honorable, the judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Oh yay! Oh yay! Oh yay. All persons having any manner or form of business before the Honorable United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit are admonished to draw nigh and give their attention for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court.
1: Seated. Mr. Marcus, you ready?
2: Good morning, and may it please the court, Jonathan Marcus on behalf of plaintiff's appellants. The named plaintiffs in this case are homeless alcoholics who Virginia has designated habitual drunkards. Based on that designation, defendants have arrested, prosecuted, and incarcerated plaintiffs repeatedly for mere possession of alcohol. The circumstances and frequency of their arrests, including for sleeping or standing near beer cans or smelling like alcohol, clearly demonstrate that Virginia is targeting plaintiffs based on their known habitual drunkard status.
3: Why, why but, just homeless? Why just the homeless ones?
2: Well, uh, well our, the class we represent is a class of homeless alcoholics, and it's our position that they're uniquely targeted by this statute.
3: But only for the purpose of that they don't have a home. What about possession if, you have, if you're a habitual drunkard? Mm-hmm. And you are bound to possess it at home. Isn't that mm-hmm. also validive?
2: Well, uh, Virg- Virginia has said uh, in their in their motion to dismiss that this this statute targets public behavior, repeated public drunkenness. So, uh, in our view, it, it clearly is targeting uh, home- homeless alcoholics. It's targeting people who are engaged in this behavior in public.
4: Well, that, uh, may, be and your, s- that may be your subjective view, but. Mm-hmm. The statute doesn't say anything about homelessness. You can have 10 homes and still be a habitual drunkard, and if you're drunk in public, you come under the statute.
2: Well, a, a couple of points, Your Honor. Well, uh, isn't
4: for, that, isn't that accurate? Well,
2: somewhat, I guess what I was... Isn't that accurate? That someone could come under it, with they,
4: they, but they would have the choice to
2: avoid the status by not getting habitually drunk would, in public.
4: The statute would cover the person that I illustrated in that statement. Correct? They would be, they could, if, if they're someone... Well, either
2: they are or they aren't, which correct. is it? Right, but they have a choice to avoid. That's the, that's the point. They have a choice not to be subject to this status. The only people who don't have a choice be subject to the status of habitual drunkards are homeless alcoholics. Well, Mr... They uh,
5: excuse me, I'm sorry, did to yeah. interrupt. Uh, Mr. Marcus, uh, could you tell us uh, what an habitual drunkard is?
2: Well, um, it's, there's no definition in the statute. Uh, but uh, the district court in the Fisher case, which this court uh, affirmed in a curiam opinion, uh, defined it as someone who is continually in the habit of being intoxicated. Uh, and, then, and then the court went on to say, and in particular, it was uh, particularly clear in that case because the individual was, uh, was homeless and was repeatedly drunk in public, which is consistent with Virginia's statement that the statute targets public behavior.
6: And I mentioned that this whole idea of targeting, um, that sounds to me like a disparate impact theory, Um, Mm -hmm. that that the statute uh, has a disparate impact Mm -hmm. on on homeless alcoholics, Mm -hmm. but I mean, while alcoholics and homeless persons are certainly deserving of civic care and and um, compassion, the, the, uh, the homeless are not a suspect class, uh, they don't have any mutable characteristic that is, attaches to suspect classes, um, such as race or or ethnicity. And when you say they're targeting, you're saying, This statute has a disparate impact upon this group, but every law has a disparate impact. Every law has a disparate impact upon someone. It has a greater impact upon some groups Mm -hmm. than upon others. But having a disparate impact Mm -hmm. on a non-suspect class Mm -hmm. does not make the law um, unconstitutional because there isn't a law in existence It doesn't have Relatively greater or relatively lesser impacts upon some groups of people. But this is, that doesn't make it unconstitutional. And to have a disparate impact theory mm-hmm. for non suspect classes mm-hmm. is a pretty wide open principle.
2: Uh, Your Honor, I guess I have two responses to that. One is uh, we, have, we have an equal protection claim, and I'll, I'll address that as well, the, uh, and what standard of review there should be, because I think you're getting into that. That claim as well, but uh, whether whether or not there's an equal protection violation here, we, we have an Eighth Amendment claim uh, that's based on the stat based on the status of our defendants and the fact that uh, of, and the fact that this statute targets and I don't mean by disparate disparate impact the intent of this statute is to target Virginia has said the design of the statute is to target public behavior so the only people who can't avoid the status of being a habitual drunkard are homeless alcoholics. It's not by impact, it's by design.
0: I'm sorry,
7: counsel, can I bring you back to the the coverage of the statute and Judge Wynn's um, first question? So the state says this targets public behavior, but the statute doesn't says that. say that, right? I mean, on its face, the statute would apply to a, a habitual drunkard possessing alcohol in his or her home, right?
2: Well, we don't uh, we don't believe so. I mean, as Judge Motz pointed out in her concurring opinion uh, in the, in la- last August, and as our amicus National Law Center for Homelessness and Poverty pointed out in their brief, uh, the term habitual drunkard has historically been associated with homelessness and vagrancy. So you're so, saying that in
7: order to be interdicted in the first place, you have to be drinking in public.
2: Yes, that's, that's correct. Okay, Virginia, but that's not
7: in the statute. It's not def- habitual drunkard is not defined that way in the statute, right?
2: Well, there's no definition. But so again, there's going- a historical association. There, there's, uh, Judge Moss cited an article, um, the, our Amicus cited articles in their brief that there's a historical association between the term habitual drunkard and homelessness and vagrancy.
7: I'm troubled well, still- because there's all this stuff we're supposed to understand about the statute, but none of it is written down in the statute mm-hmm. books, what habitual drunkard means that this targets public behavior? Because if you just read it on its, and there's a whole provision for getting search warrants for homes, it, it just, it's not obvious on the face of it that it's limited in the way you're suggesting. Well, I mean, we have, we have
2: Virginia saying that's the design of the statute. We have the state of Virginia saying the statute's designed to target repeated public drunkenness. So but, that's but what counsel- the, habitual, that's what the, so we have that. We have, again, a historical association that's been pointed out uh, between habitual drunkards and homelessness and vagrancy. We also have the allegations in our complaint about how um, we have both anecdotal allegations about how the statute is repeatedly, repeatedly being used to arrest, prosecute, and incarcerate our clients. Why do uh, you have to, a Fourth Amendment over... challenge to that? Your Honor, uh, with respect, I really think that misses the forest for the trees. This is a systemic problem. Uh, we, while we could have a separate claim for a Fourth Amendment uh, violation in every single arrest, some some of our clients have been arrested and prosecuted up to thirty times. But, in the, the,
6: but the but the only thing that's targeted here, mm-hmm. criminally targeted, are acts the acts of consuming, purchasing, possessing, or. Uh, any alcoholic beverage.
2: Well, we, I, I respectfully disagree, because it's it's fun, It's based on the status of being a habitual drunkard. If you don't have that status, if our clients didn't have that status, they'd be free to engage in that possession. They couldn't be arrested. They're being arrested because of yes, their but status. The,
6: but the status but, is not criminalized. That's the it point. It is. No, it's not. Well,
2: it, but it's, but it, it, through, through a two-step process, it is.
6: That's right. But the, you have to go through a two-step process. And the second step of that process involves acts and the Commonwealth of Virginia has every right it has no right to criminalize status as in the first step and it has not done so but it does have a right to criminalize acts involving alcohol such as consuming purchasing possessing etc etc Robinson makes that clear and that and only those acts is what Virginia criminalizes.
2: Respectfully, Your Honor, I don't think Robinson makes that clear. Robinson, Robinson was talking about drug addiction and found that drug addiction is a status crime. It also talked about drug possession and other drug crimes that are universally prohibited crimes. Robinson did not specifically address the situation where you have a, a statute that, tar- that targets a status and prohibits an act that is inseparable from that status and doesn't prohibit it as to anybody else. So it's a, this is I, when you're saying there's sort of a status plus act here. This act is inseparable from the status, and everyone else can avoid being but a habitual it does,
8: drunker. D- d- going back to Judge Agee's question. Mm-hmm. You it it does if you've been interdic- interdicted. It says you shall not possess any alcoholic beverages. That's one part. So that could be in your house. Then it says nor be drunk in public. So it is broader than. Simply homeless people, isn't it
2: I'm, I'm sorry well, it says
8: shall if you have been interdic- interdicted, mm-hmm. you shall not possess any alcoholic beverages <laughs> It doesn't say in public until later, where it says nor be drunk in public so you could it doesn't simply target the homeless, it doesn't sound like. Going back to Judge Agee's question. Yeah,
2: but it, uh, yes, Your Honor. I, uh, but it operates in tandem with the habitual drunkard provision. And the habitual drunkard provision, as Virginia has said, is designed to target public behavior. So to get within do you that prohibited agree? Static, counsel, yeah. do, you,
9: do you agree? I mean, it seems like you're fighting this idea awfully hard mm-hmm. um, that it applies only to homeless, based on what sounds like you know some statement made by the state and some his, historical practice, when the statute itself plainly applies to homeless and non-homeless. If you lose on that mm-hmm. point, does not does that totally ban your Eighth Amendment claim? Do well, you I, have an Eighth Amendment claim if we reject that argument?
2: Well, let me, let me just uh, say, I, I'll answer your question. But we have, on top of everything you've said, we also have the allegations in our complaint, the anecdotal evidence. Why don't you evidence. start with the question and I, then
9: come back to everything else? Um,
2: so I guess what I would say is, at this stage, we're we're at the complaint stage. Our complaint was dismissed. Uh, if our if we have plausible allegations, then our case should be able to go forward. Actually, must go forward, and uh, we should have a, a, be able to prove our prove our claim. And we have we already have statistics that show that this statute is. Appears to be very narrowly focused on a tiny subset of the Virginia population. We believe it's that's the homeless alcoholics who are who are
9: plaintiffs in this case. So, so should, yeah, the answer to my question is yes. Your Eighth Amendment claim depends upon that premise.
2: Uh, it depends upon the premise that yes, that this is the, the the status those who are prohibited from engaging in this behavior are um, have that status and can and, and can't avoid that status if they're if they're. Other people who could, could be caught up in it but have the choice to avoid it, then it still would be an eighth amendment violation because the design's to target our clients. So the fact that there's some people who just by choice wind up being part of that class, that doesn't take away from the design to target our clients. I gather
4: that um, over here. I uh, gather that uh, your proposition then would attack a statute that says a 15-year-old is uh, in the status of a juvenile and uh, the law prohibits a 15-year-old from drinking uh, and the state goes after these high school parties uh, that they're targeting uh, 15-year-olds and therefore that's an Eighth Amendment violation. I, I, I don't, if I, I follow mean, 15-year-old's a status, if I follow, an uncontrollable yes. status. And so somebody who drinks when he's mm-hmm. 15 years old mm-hmm. violates the law. Well, I guess a couple of
2: points. First, the, the prohibition on juveniles on under 21, that's universal.
4: It's not trying to single not well, universal. It, it's to people who are under 18. Right, but, it, well, but it's universal. That's a class. That's a status. It's, it's, not,
2: it's not trying. Among 18, those under 18, it's not trying to separate out based on a particular <clears throat> Uh, status yeah. like an addiction, as we have in this case. Well, this
4: isn't the well. An addiction. A person mm-hmm. who's addicted is prohibited from doing certain things too. A person who's committed a felony is prohibited from doing things. A person who's too young. Right. And a person are, and the- who's mentally disabled is uh, prohibited. Our laws classify people mm-hmm. by status. They don't criminalize the status. Mm-hmm. They criminalize mm-hmm. conduct by people in that status. Right, and, and So. A 15 year old is not criminally liable because the person's criminal. Of 15. But that, again. Just a minute. Okay. The person is criminalized when that 15 year old drinks. And in this case, the interdiction imposes the classification. And if that person uh, who has been classified uh, as a habitual drunkard, and that's how you define your class, only the habitual drunkards, uh, if that person drinks uh, in public, possesses in public, Uh, then that person uh, violates the law. It's sort of straightforward on the the face of the statute.
2: Uh, I I disagree that. I mean, in your example, that person isn't compelled to drink by a disease. And again, it also is applying to that's everyone. That's totally different. The, the that's pro- an
4: involitional type of thing. Right, that, but
2: that's, what we have, that's, the, that's exactly the point here. Well, that means every here. drug
4: law, per, every time we uh, take, uh, uh, convict somebody for drugs, we're in the same problem, right?
2: No, it's fundamentally different. When you have a, a criminal prohibition that's generally applicable, the state has made a determination that that conduct is sufficiently dangerous that it's prohibited for everyone. Everyone's in the, on, the, on the same footing. Everyone's prohibited from doing it. The problem here is a very narrow class of people is being branded and the behavior is only criminal for them, and they can't control that behavior. Mr. Marcus. In this narrow context, it is a status crime. It's effectively a status crime. Our clients are being repeatedly prosecuted for being homeless alcoholics.
6: To the the degree that this this whole um, notion is targeting, you can look at it as not just they're not targeting just a group. They are targeting a certain species of behavior and that is the public drunkenness and all its manifestations. And the, the state is, exp- uh, is trying to execute its basic powers under our federal system of being able to control the deleterious effects of alcohol. And one of the things we know, and it goes way back to the temperance unions in the 1920s, is that alcohol fuels some some very undesirable behaviors. Among those undesirable behaviors are domestic abuse and assault. Among those undesirable behaviors are campus assault on, uh, uh, sexual assaults on campus. And now we're finally beginning to have some awareness of the dimensions of this problem. Why would we pick this particular moment to hinder and impair the states two-step effort, which follows a pattern in many jurisdictions of, um, of trying to deal with the deleterious effects of alcohol and restore, frankly, to women some degree of physical safety and peace of mind because we know and the Commonwealth of Virginia knew, and its legislature knows today that some of the worst crimes of violence against all people, and against women in particular, are fueled by alcohol. And this is one of those things that the statute is not targeting people, it's targeting the ill effects of alcohol.
2: Uh, Your Honor, I respectfully disagree. Uh, First of all, you mentioned other states. This act we think actually Virginia is the only state who, uh, that, that targets I'm talking about the out- general,
6: the, the general power of the mm-hmm. states under its police and, power to, and, to, tar- and the to state target has
2: pl- And the state has it. plenty of tools at its disposal to, pros- to prosecute dangerous conduct. What we're talking about here are are, p- are sweeping people off the streets because they're sleeping on a park bench, because they're walking down a, you, a Walmart put, aisle, because they're, there's, to, there, there's not this excuse behavior. Me.
8: Can you put together for me your best argument that this statute targets homeless alcoholics? Because I'm really not getting it.
2: So it's a combination of, of factors. Uh, and. Uh, the first The first factor is as as I mentioned before that historically the term habitual drunkard has been associated with homelessness and vagrancy, um, and there's literature on that. secondly, um, the state here has asserted in its brief and its motion to dismiss that this statute is designed to target public drunkenness, public behavior aren't you really
0: I- talking about discriminatory enforcement so I'm having mm-hmm. a conceptual problem that I, I hear um, underlying a lot of the questions and that you seem to think that homelessness is a status that one opts into and out, that one has a choice. One could go home, go to a home. The fact that one has a home to go to takes them out of the category of, of persons affected by the statute. And there's simply, and and this is... Picking up a little bit on Judge Sackler's question, that's just not anywhere.
2: Well, I think you can, again, you can read it into the design of the statute. Well, you
0: can, but there's no not, reason that you have to, is the problem.
2: Well, I mean, uh, but, You have certainly
0: if, read it in, but it's y- not necessarily or unnecessarily implicit.
2: Well, I think, again, I think if you look at the historical association you of, can, the, of the term, I grant you, and, and we're And all Could this, you let
0: us finish our uh, questions? Uh, Thank you. You certainly, I'm not taking issue with the fact that you could read it that way. Mm-hmm. I'm taking issue with the fact that for in a context where we do not, where laws are presumptively constitutional, well, you, you do grant me that, that we do assume uh, mm-hmm. that legislature, legislatures act constitutionally that in that construct in mm-hmm. that context mm-hmm. we do not necessarily um, have to assume as you would have us assume that that's the that 's the force and effect of the law thank you i mean i'm I- I'm
2: through now. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, um, and I, I guess what I would say is again, I would just re- remind the court that we are on a motion to dismiss. At this stage, our, our claims have to be evaluated as to whether they're plausible or not. And we believe based on the history, based on the way we've alleged this statute is being enforced against our clients, um, based on the statistics we provide, and again, we've only, right now we only have publicly available statistics, but what those statistics show is with respect to the problem of alcohol abuse, 500,000 alcoholics in Virginia, a minute number of people are being interdicted under this provision. And I think it was rough, roughly 1,200 in a nine-year period leading up to the filing of our complaint. So Mr. Very, very
5: Marcus, very- Mr. Marcus, excuse me for interrupting, sir. But I'm, I'm curious. Uh, it seems to me that uh, if you're not arguing a disparate impact, that you're, that you're touching on the issue of vagueness that Mm -hmm. anybody can be an habitual drunkard under this statute, okay? And you Mm -hmm. argue that in your complaint. And Mm -hmm. it it seems to me that 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 is a a great evil, arguably with this statute, Mm -hmm. because what is an habitual drunkard? You seem to Mm -hmm. just assume it's somebody who's always drunk. Mm -hmm. Would it be somebody who gets drunk every Saturday night? Mm -hmm. Would it be somebody who gets drunk just when they get in fights. Um, who knows what an habitual drunkard is? And you seem to be reading that out of your case. Um, well, uh, could you tell us why you're reading that out of your case? Well,
2: um, well I, I guess what I would say is um, you're, you're right that there certainly are a lot of questions. Um, that, But this court in the Fisher case did Define habitual drunkard, uh, and there's a Virginia Court of Appeals case that has applied that definition as well. You want us um, to overrule
1: Fisher, though, don't you?
2: Yes, we do. We do. And um, what about and, and, if we I, overrule
1: th- Fisher? What happens to driver? You, and driver supports you straight up,
2: doesn't it? Yes, uh, dr- driver would support us straight up. I mean, I think that we we haven't asked the court to go. But well, what
1: happens to, to if we overrule Fisher? What then does that resurrect driver? Well, uh, I think because Fisher
2: purported to overrule Driver, it
1: could, there, or that because yes, the district that's court. That's correct. In in Fisher said Driver, that's it correct. And it, it could
2: it, it could, but I don't think you necessarily have to go that far. As as, uh, as as we explained in our briefs, there's we think there is a, a significant distinction between a generally applicable statute. So you like, got
1: straight up precedent like, in this court. If Fisher goes away, Yeah. you got a straight up precedent in this court to support you. Yes, and by way of Driver. Written by Judge Brian the Elder.
2: Yes, and that and that was a public to intoxication case, so that that absolutely does support us. It's also and we're and we are also supported by the five the, the views of five justices in the Mr. Powell case. Of course, in in bank, bank
1: we can, but we can overrule Driver but, too if yeah, we want to. Yeah, but that's but, precedent. Yeah. That. And the precedent would be in your favor if Fisher yes.
9: goes away. Mr. Yes. Marcus, let me. I, I'm over here. You're right. Sorry, I know, it's a, okay. I know it's a hard thing to see okay. where we are. Okay. Um, let me uh, assume we don't agree, and I'm not coming to any conclusion with your Eighth Amendment market, uh, argument. Do you agree that the equal protection argument is a rational relations test? Um, we don't, Your Honor. Uh, what, we, what's the basis that it would not be a rational relation we, test? Um, under the under the
2: Skinner case, which is a Supreme Court case, right. which is still good law. The Supreme Court said that where you have two groups that are similarly situated, and the punishment for those two groups is disparate, is a different punishment for two groups, uh, in that case it was forced sterilization, um, it gets, that kind of statute gets the most exacting scrutiny as though you're dealing with a suspect class. So that's the principle we're relying on. A plurality of the Supreme Court relied on that principle in the Fusha case, which we also cite in our brief that said freedom from physical restraint is a fundamental liberty interest. And when you d- disparately punish two groups of similarly situated people, uh, that implicates that interest, that fundamental liberty interest. And it should be subject to strict scrutiny, even assuming there's no suspect class. Um, and, this, and the state doesn't even try to defend the statute under that scrutiny. I would also, I would also add that if the court disagrees, um, as we say in our brief, there should be the most. If you're going to apply a lower level review, there should be the most careful, though, careful scrutiny given uh, to, you know, careful, rational basis scrutiny, whatever you want to call it, because we're dealing with a group with a disability, alcoholism. It's recognized as a disability under the American Disability Act. Let, let me we're ask do-
3: you. Let me ask you a question. For God to where we are, because mm-hmm. we've had a lot of discussion. But as I see the judicial choice in this case, what we have is clear law that i think we all agree you can't punish a person because of their status and being a habitual drunkard is a status you can't punish them from that i think most of us agree to that not all of us the supreme court seems to agree so beyond that the question then becomes if a person who is homeless and those are your clients Mm -hmm. is out in public drinking Mm -hmm. is that act part of the status or is it an independent act Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I heard Judge Niemeyer's, uh reference to the 15 year olds, and you know, in terms of status, this is a different type of status. But at the same time, that individual is not prohibited. In other words, you, you still could prosecute him for an act that doesn't relate to the habitual drunkenness. In other words, if he robbed a bank or if he did some other things, you could you could punish him. Your Your argument, as I understand it, and the choice before us is whether we're going to say that here's a person that we all accept as habitual drunkard. Habitual drunkards can't stop drinking. They have alcohol. They can't help themselves. They also, by the definition of your clients, they don't have a home, which means it's going to be public whenever they possess it. Given those facts, then, then the choice is, do you think that if this type of individual in the public has alcohol, is that an independent act or is it because he's an habitual drunkard? Right. The
2: status of it, right. and, and we, that
3: seems to be the choice here more so than you know. Do we fall
2: into the other aspects of the constitutional? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Um, can I can I answer the? Yes, question? you may. Yes, uh, for two points. One, in this context, it's not it's not an independent act. It's inseparable from the status. These individuals are compelled to be in public, and they're compelled to drink based on their disease. So it's inseparable. It's not an independent act. And and what's re- what reinforces that is they're the only group that's prohibited from doing this. No one else, anyone else can avoid the habitual drunkard designation and engage in this conduct. It's well, how, not prohibited. It's prohibited <clears throat> for the select, very, very select, how very small group. Um, how
8: So what about homeless people who are addicted to drugs or homeless people who are pedophiles that, uh, I'm sh- that I know say that that is a disease or disorder, that they are compelled to prey upon children? What about that then? Is that the next case?
2: Uh, well, Yaron, I think you'd have to um, I, you know, take each statue in sort of as it's set up. To, I mean, for me to evaluate whether which sort of side of the line it falls on. Um, but if, if again, if, if only a, a particular group is being singled out. Um, and with no prior conviction, when there's historically, it's well settled that if there's prior conviction, if, if the statute requires prior convictions, you can impose lots of restrictions. And typically, that's a
3: confusing t- answer to me. It seems to me, what you have here is something that's perfectly legal: possessing alcohol, being a pedophile. That's that's illegal. I don't care what your status is. Right. So I don't understand that, your answer. I don't, yeah. I,
2: why don't you just answer the question directly? <laughs> 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 um, that's. And that's another reason, but. That's, that's a, much a, better, yeah. a much better answer, a better counsel, counsel, you
1: might want to help. Yeah. Maybe I can help you. Yeah. Your time is up. OK. Yeah.
2: Um, I reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank, Thank you.
1: you. <laughs> Mr. McGuire.
10: Good morning, your honors, and may it please the court. Matt McGuire on behalf of the Appalese. The U.S. Supreme Court made clear in Robinson v. California that the state's authority to regulate the use of dangerous and habit-forming drugs was too firmly established to be successfully called into question. The same is true of alcohol, and all that Virginia is regulating here is conduct related to alcohol use.
1: Alcohol is not a dangerous drug, is it?
10: It can be, Your it Honor. It can
1: be, but it's not, is it? Well, no one has declared that in any state yet, I don't think. I mean, the Volstead Act is well past us. If you're, if you're a certain age, you can drink alcohol. I think many
10: people do. Well, it's a choice states can make, Your Honor, and no <laughs> state has completely prohibited it. But yeah, there, but you started
1: off with uh, maybe with a glass jar. You talk about Robinson and drugs, but it's just consuming alcohol as an adult is totally acceptable. As a matter of fact, people call it your sociable.
10: <laughs> well, Your Honor, but it can be dangerous, and what the Absolutely. Commonwealth- Absolutely, it
1: can be if you're driving a car and you're intoxicated, if you're doing those kind of things that my good friend, Judge Wilkerson talk about abusing people. Yes, it can be, but the act of drinking alcohol is certainly accepted in American society, and you'd have to agree with that, don't you?
10: Your Honor, in general, yes, but again, what the Commonwealth is doing here with habitual drunkard designation, and some of the questions seem to align that with alcoholism generally. That isn't what it is. If you look at the statutory text, it says, has shown himself to be. There is a conduct related to the consumption of alcohol. What what is an habitual drunkard? The definition that is sort of given by Fisher and was used by the Court of Appeals in Jackson, I'll I'll just give you a a straight answer, Judge Keating: is someone who has consistently and repeatedly become intoxicated to the point of impairment who calls harm to other persons or their community. Okay, but where do you find that? It's a, you take it out of Fisher and Jackson. So it's just just, sort of there. It's there, Your Honor, but it's important to note that my friend on the other side had a void for vagueness challenge in the district court. I know they
5: did, and that does give us, jurisdiction to consider that. We have the discretion to consider it since he raised it in the district court. Judge
10: King, you can consider it, but normally this court treats issues that are completely abandoned on appeal. They didn't brief it at all as way Well, now wait a minute, though.
5: It was uh, in the panel. They said they weren't raising it, but in their petition for rehearing in bank, they did not say that they were abandoning it.
10: But Judge Keene, if you go back and look at their, the opening brief of the appellant filed oh, in this I understand case, that. they, they but, but, Yes,
5: Mr. McGuire, but if you look at their petition for rehearing in bank, because now the, the panel proceedings are gone, now I, that we're in bank, there's nothing in that petition for rehearing in bank that says that they aren't asking the court to consider vagueness,
10: is there? Judge Kane, there is nothing in the petition for rehearing on bond. My understanding of this court's rules is you rely on the briefing from below unless the court asks for additional briefing by the parties. Well, your view
6: companies. is this is a short-circuiting the, the panel process, and normally we depend on uh, panels to air these issues for the in-bank court. And in in the brief before the panel, it says count five alleges that the interdiction statute is vague, unconstitutionally vague. District Court dismissed this count. And plaintiffs do not press this claim here. Then they repeat the waiver. Uh, district Court in footnote 9, the district court additionally rejected plaintiffs bearing claim. Plaintiffs do not press this claim here. And I realize the panel opinion is vacated, but we also rely on the panel process to air the issues and, and formulate them for the in-bank court. The panel was never given that chance. And, and then and, and, and those two footnotes, there's a waiver is about as explicit as it could possibly be.
10: Judge Wilkinson, I agree with that. It's also, the panel didn't have a chance to consider it. The Commonwealth didn't have an opportunity to really brief it before this court. What, what I, panel are you talking about? The, the, the panel that heard this heard case it. initially, Judge It's That's Winn. vacated. It's vacated, Your Honor, but they didn't have What do we eye- care about what they did here? Well, I, from my perspective, Judge Wynn, for the Commonwealth. I understand from your perspective, it, but from our perspective, it's vacated. Vacated means it doesn't exist. That's correct, Judge Wynn. But uh, well,
3: Mar-
0: then
10: why are you talking about something that doesn't exist? Because the, because <laughs> the way the panel the question. because the way that I understand the panel process to work and the en banc process, Judge Wynn, correct me if I'm wrong, is that when the petition for rehearing en banc is granted, this court proceeds on the briefs that were filed to the panel, unless the court asks for additional briefing, which is certainly the court's right, and I, we would have been happy to address vagueness if that had been a question the court had wanted to have us address. Do not you think you should just address this as a new, as though you were talking to us in the first instance and just move forward? The judge Wynn, other than that, providing definition of habitual drunkard, which I have, which I think is recognized in Virginia law and isn't void for vagueness. What is the
3: definition of habitual
10: drunkard? The, the definition that we rely on, Your Honor, is the one from Jackson versus Commonwealth and Fisher versus Coleman. It's essentially someone who has repeatedly and consistently become intoxicated to the point of impairment, causes harm to other persons or to their community. What it's How do you
8: define repeatedly and consistently?
10: Your Honor, what we think—I don't have a clear definition for that to answer the question. So it's directly.
8: vague if you don't have a clear definition.
10: Your Honor, it is—it is admittedly a little bit vague. But what is key to the, the well, to the if it's stat- a
5: little bit vague, isn't that like a little bit pregnant? I mean, if it's <laughs> if it's vague, there isn't a basis for somebody to know and comport themselves to stay outside the outside the boundaries of the prohibition. Let me tell you why I'm worried about it, because not only is it To my mind, we have a vagueness problem, but there's a baked-in criminal enhancement in this, And 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 this is what I'm interested in your response to. A person who is interdicted and later found to be drunk in public is subject to a Class one misdemeanor and imprisonment for one year. A person who is drunk in public and has not been interdicted cannot serve one day in jail. The exact same conduct So there is a criminal enhancement essentially baked into this on the basis that somebody is determined by somebody to be sort of an habitual drunkard. You see what I'm saying? Judge Keenan, Um, I do. The exact same conduct can put you in jail for a year under this vague language when if you were found simply to be drunk in public doing the exact same thing on the streets you could only get a $250 fine. Now, why isn't
10: that a problem with your statute? Judge King, can, can I take it in two parts? I'd really like to try to persuade the court on the vagueness point a little bit. On OK, about how why the, don't you do that, how but the statute, first address the question. I, I sort of understand it's a two-part question, Judge Mott. So I can take the piece of this, the penalty enhancement, in two parts, which is one, that's, that's part of the statute. They haven't challenged here the public drunkenness provision. That is not part of their claim. They're just targeting the possession or consumption aspects which Judge Keane, I think, has the same same problem that you've identified. It increases the penalty, which the Judge Gregory's point. Normally, people can possess and consume alcohol without criminal penalties well, attached. And this so all I goes to same.
5: vagueness. How can so how can you hold somebody to a a penalty of one year incarceration for the exact same conduct uh, based on them being hab- habitually drunk, which you say is sort of intoxication? How can you hold them to one year in the penitentiary, or excuse me, in the jail for, or for that conduct when the exact same conduct will only net you a $250 fine if you haven't been called? sort of an habitual
10: drunkard. Judge Keenan, because it's not somebody calling you a habitual drunkard. It's a Virginia Circuit Court judge who's heard a petition, who has seen evidence that your conduct, you've shown by your conduct that you are a habitual drunkard. But you
5: agree you don't have to be convicted of any crime to be an habitual drunkard? You don't have to be convicted of a crime,
10: Your Honor, but the way this comes up, and the sentence that was quoted a lot, and I do want to clarify the record on this from my friend on the other side about what the Commonwealth said in its motion to dismiss, is not that it targets people in public, what the Commonwealth said is that the conduct targeted by the Virginia interdiction statute is possession or consumption of alcoholic beverage by individuals who have a demonstrated history of public drunkenness.
6: Let so me wa- address for just one minute this, this vagueness notion. The Papa Cristo, which is the, the original vagrancy, the sort of landmark vagrancy case, that was a criminal statute, and most of the vagueness doctrine has been applied in the context of criminal prohibitions. The whole point of this two-step process is that the first step is not criminal, it's civil. And so to get at a vagueness problem here, you would have to adopt a theory of civil vagueness. And that goes far afield from the uh, line of Supreme Court cases from Papa Christou down onward, looking at these vagueness challenges. They have to do with the lack of notice for criminal prohibitions, criminal prohibitions. And if you go to the notion of civil vagueness, that opens up so much. Um, There are a whole lot of civil statutes that impose liability, including punitive damages, for example, that if we're going to apply civil vagueness doctrine, will be under assault. What about a statute like the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is, is, has a certain stigma attached to it because if you engage in a conspiracy and a strain of trade, that, that, that's not good. What about the securities fraud statutes? When you go down the road of civil vagueness as opposed to criminal vagueness, you are opening up so much because all kinds of statutes that impose one kind of civil designation or civil sanction or civil liability, they could all be open to a certain vagueness challenge. I don't understand where this theory of civil vagueness would end.
10: Your Honor, what I could say is that your Honor understands the statutory scheme correctly. It is a civil interdiction order, which we think isn't intended to continuously lock up individuals. The point is it's well, a prophylactic measure. Well, what if it has
5: a baked-in criminal enhancement, though? How can you say it's purely civil? If the consequence is to elevate to a year in jail, it's, it's, it's not purely civil. If it has that baked-in enhancement for the exact same conduct, how can you just simply say it's civil? Because I,
10: I don't think it's really baked in in that way because there's a there's an act that asks for you have to violate the law in order to incur the criminal penalty enhancement and the reason same for the,
5: for the drunken public person doing the exact same thing and they can't go to
10: jail but they be- can only get a 250 dollar fine but that's because Judge Keenan, they haven't shown themselves to a virginia circuit court judge that they can't use alcohol in a safe and responsible manner and it is important to note that the statute isn't limited to people who are in public and they happen to be seen by the authorities it would cover situations where if a police are called to the house for a domestic violence, incident, what was that you just said? You
3: can't show Virginia that you can use alcohol in a safe manner and a safer That's the whole basis. So, so tell me in the context of power, which is a four-one-four decision, which of those decisions do you consider be controlling? What do you think the ruling is? It appears to me, so power may address just what you brought to mind there, and that is if a person can mix an involuntary act that is as a result of, a, of an, unavoidable, that's an unavoidable consequence of their status. That's not permitted.
10: That's the narrowest ruling of Powell. Do you disagree? Judge When I do disagree slightly. I agree with you that the narrowest- Tell me the
3: opinions in Powell that you consider to be controlling, and where would you get the law from in Powell? You have a 4-1-4 four, four
10: decision. So, Judge Wynn, I think at the outset, you disregard the dissent. What Mark says, you look at the, the justices who concurred in the result and in the majority. So Did Mark
3: re- say that? It does, that you Your Honor. Disregarded, you look- how about to the extent that that one opinion agrees with
10: the dissent? That's, I, Judge Wynn, I would agree that there seems to be some similarity between Justice White and the but dissent. You but you
3: disagree if the one agrees with the four that's in dissent,
10: that that's not controlling law? Correct, Judge Wynn. That is our position. Even though that's the majority? But that wasn't the, but they didn 't concur in the judgment of the court. If you look at Marx itself, Marx says, quote, "The position taken by those members who concurred in the judgments, the dissent does not occur in the judgment. And if you look at the Marx opinion itself, as it determined what the controlling opinion was in that case, they don't talk about the dissent. Well
6: why don't we look at what the Supreme Court has done? Because the Supreme Court in 60 years has never indicated that the Status Act extension of Robinson has been repealed." And in fact, they cite to Robinson regularly. They did it in Atkins v. Virginia, Solem v. Helm, Rummel v. Estelle. And when the Supreme Court has cited to Powell, it is invariably cited to the four judge plurality opinion in, in, in Powell, it did it in um, Clark v. Arizona, Montana v. Inglehoff Medina v. California, Ingraham v. Wright, Marshall v. United States, O'Connor v. v. Uh, Do- Donaldson. The Supreme Court has never indicated itself that Robinson Uh, was overturned or cut back on. And when it's cited to Powell, it's been to the plurality opinion. And I don't understand exactly what authority we have to take liberties of this sort with a Supreme Court opinion that has stood for 60 years that the courts have almost uniformly followed and that the Supreme Court itself has cited as good law.
3: Judge Wilkins, That's, that's another judicial choice we have here. That is, do you accept Robertson, which is a 4-1-4 decision, that the 4 is a plurality? Or do you follow what I perceive to be the Marx rule, and that is that the single judge who's concurring is the narrowest opinion. And the narrowest opinion is where it agrees with either majority or the dissent in that case. That's a judicial choice. Judge Wilkinson's position presents one perspective of it, But the other perspective, I do not think the Supreme Court has ignored the fact of what is actually a majority of the case where that one judge, was it Justice White? It was Justice White. Justice White agreed either with the the majority, written by
10: Justice Marshall, or the dissent. Judge Wynn, so I think you're right. It is a judicial decision for this court to make, especially banc, on banc. I don't think
3: it's answered so easily as to say, you know, you just follow that the Supreme Court has quoted a
10: few times from,
3: from the fore, and therefore whatever Mark says doesn't apply.
10: Well, Judge Wynn, I, I do <laughs> think Judge Wilkinson is right. That Powell, our view is Powell is sort of a faithful application of Robinson, but on the mm-hmm. Mark's rule in particular. Robinson I just,
3: gave us almost nothing, and that's why we needed Powell. Robinson basically gave us that the idea of the status but there's really nothing expounding from robinson that allows us to make an informed decision here without
10: power well judge Wynn I, th- I think Robinson makes it actually very clear that the Commonwealth of Virginia has correctly declined to criminalize status if the law said you're a designated habitual drunkard that act that existence that status is criminalized that would be a problem for all the reasons and then in.
3: we all agree on is it. that the status it's the question of whether These are involuntary acts that arise from conduct that is unavoidable as a result of the status. That's what we can get out of power. Well, that depends on how you
10: read Powell. Can I ask you a question about
7: what your brief says about how to read Powell? Your brief, as I understand it, says we do have to follow the white concurrence and find the area of agreement between the white concurrence and the majority. And you believe, so assuming for a minute that that's the right approach then the rule is that the offense has to involve at least one volitional element. So what is the volitional element in this case? The
10: possession or consumption of alcohol. But
7: but we're on a motion to dismiss, and I believe the pleadings say that the plaintiffs that is not volitional for them.
10: Judge Harris, because the way we def- it's how you define volitional act, okay. and the way we would define volitional how act would you is sort of based around the irresistible impulse in Virginia, which is exactly, and I would like to quote the, this language. So to- I'm sorry,
7: so your position is you win because it is a volitional act for these particular alcoholics who have pled that they have no power to resist using alcohol. It is nevertheless volitional for these alcoholics to drink.
10: Judge Harris, our position is unless they prove the irresistible impulse defense as part of their criminal case, it constitutes a volitional act for purposes okay. of the Eighth Amendment. And I, I want wonder-
7: Can I just ask one? Sure. I'll let you go in one second. If I disagree with that, is there an alternative ground on which you might win this case?
10: Your Honor, I think it comes down to how you read Powell. And we do think you have. I, what we tried to do in our brief in candor to the court is we believe the court should try to ascribe meaning to the U.S. Supreme Court's decisions where it can. <laughs> this court at we're, A- we're for that. I'm just quoting yeah. from yeah. the the yeah. court in AT Massey Cole. This court sort of sets out how it views Marx. And Judge Wynne, I wanted to point this out to you. If the court decides to adopt the position that's Justice White plus the four dissents, you probably need to also discuss AT Massey Cole and sort of push back on the idea that you only look at the majority and you look for the common reasoning between the two. And Judge Harris, to your question, the problem here is there's oh, very when little. you use the
3: word majority. Are you talking about that four?
10: Yes, Judge Wayne, under 18, under Four out of nine is a majority, in your opinion. No, Your Honor, you have a five justice majority who concurred in the judgment in Powell. And what A.T. Massey Cole from the Court 2002 says, you look for the common reasoning between the plurality and Justice White. What makes Powell so difficult is there is very little common reasoning between the two opinions. So, Judge Harris, we tried to offer a definition of volitional act that would describe some meaning to that case.
6: Well, why does the Supreme Court repeatedly cite to the the plurality opinion in Powell? And why did Justice White say explicitly, I can't reach this question of non-volitional conduct because the plaintiff and the defendant in that case has never shown that that he could avoid being on the streets, that he couldn't avoid being on the streets. I mean, you know, we... Well, I've already said it. One thing I want to mention, it's been brought up that there's a motion that this is resolved on a motion for dismiss and that we should remand in order to um, collect all kinds of evidence about how the program is, is working. And I wonder, doesn't that essentially turn the district court into a legislative chamber? Because the empirical judgments about how the program is working or not working or what the effects of the program are or what the effects of the program are not, um, those are legislative matters. And legislatures have a chance and should have the chance to evaluate their programs and how they're working on an ongoing basis. And when we, if we remand, we're asking the district court to find legislative facts, not litigated facts, but legislative facts, and we're turning it in the district court into a legislative chambers. Isn't that the problem with the remand here, is that we are usurping the role of the General Assembly?
10: Judge Wilkinson, we agree this is a legislative policy decision, and it's important for the court to also just be aware that the General Assembly of Virginia has reconsidered this statute in a number of consecutive years, including this year, there's a bill up that I believe has actually been heard in committee today that would repeal large portions of this. And so it's a component of what Virginia does as it relates to homelessness or alcoholism or any other societal ill. Here, the amicus brief filed in support of my friends on the other side points out that Virginia has other programs in addition to this, housing programs and other alcohol-related treatment programs. It isn't true that Virginia is simply rounding up alcoholics and putting them in jail and branding them with this tag, which is what my friend would ask this court so and we, don't we have
1: to accept that at this point what what they allege that? I mean it, 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 it's not our job to legislate but it's not, also not our job to wait for people to change legislation either. The question is existential now as whether well there's a violation. Well, Judge and, Rick- in, in vagrancy laws for example throughout the south historically, did they mention race at all in terms of the enforcement or, or The the violation for vagrancy,
10: Judge Gregory, I think, generally speaking, no. But
1: how how was it enforced? I mean, it was meant to many African-Americans went to jail just for standing on a corner, right? Because they didn't have a job. They didn't have a home. That wasn't their town. So we're looking at this. And going back to Justice White, Justice White said that there, they had not established that it was non-volitional. And therefore, if they could, then it would be the same as a status offense. Why would we stop this case now at this juncture when they say we do have evidence to show that this class, it is something that they just can't say, stop drinking?
10: Judge Gregory, for a couple of reasons. Why would we
1: stop it? Yes.
10: Because the Eighth Amendment, generally speaking, <clears throat> says very little about substantive state criminal law. And so Robinson sort of stands with a legitimate case, and we think, the court should follows Robinson. My second point on this is they could raise exactly what they're raising to this court in all of their criminal cases in which they have appointed counsel and they're entitled to full panoply of criminal rights. And the reason why is the irresistible impulse defense in Virginia is defined exactly as their claim. It is the jury instruction from the they
1: raises in step one and step two, the criminal prosecution or the interdiction determination.
10: As part of the criminal prosecution. It's too late then.
1: That's, you know, once you're interdicted, that's the case closed. The question now is, did you possess? Did you drink.
10: <laughs> but that, that, Judge Gregory, that's why this jury instruction is so important. It's, a quote, from 2010 from the Virginia Supreme Court where the accused is able to understand the nature and consequences of, of his act, which I understand my friends to say they do, and knows it is wrong, it is under the law, but his mind has become so impaired by disease that he is totally deprived of the mental power to control or restrain his act. That is exactly the claim here. And so, what we would ask is rather than expand the Eighth Amendment and expand Robinson. This already is taken care of in Virginia criminal law. They can raise this claim as part of their criminal cases. And whereas on the civil side, you don't have an attorney.
1: So they, so they, they, they had to go to the McNaughton rule and go back to that in, in insanity. No one pleads insanity for a misdemeanor. Because, they, because to win that is worse than to lose it.
10: Well, Judge Gregory, here they have they
1: You know what I mean by that, don't you? It's better to do 12 months and then you're out than to be declared to be insane and never get out.
10: It it is a pure defense, Judge Gregory, to the charges which they they have the ability to bring. And so they should. we think they have to put on expert testimony in the district court if this court ever remanded to prove that they are completely (laughs) unable to control their actions. They'd have to put the same testimony on in Virginia State Court. And we think that's the better way to handle this case than to expand the Eighth Amendment. Because there are concerns that have been pointed out by Uh, the court and some of the questioning about the slippery slope that's here, and I don't need to walk the court all the way back through it, but one example we gave before is the protective order situation. It's a civil court order to issue a protective order to protect somebody in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and that civil order, which can be issued ex parte, carries criminal penalties if you violate it. And so that you could easily have somebody come forward and say, I have a disease, I have a mental illness, I'm compelled to follow this person, whereas the rest of the world is free to engage in that conduct.
6: But this two-step model is, is widely widely used, and it's basic to the police power that a state can calibrate restrictions on acts, restrictions on behavior, to the degree of risk that is posed. And the domestic abuse situation that you point out with temporary restraining orders, follows that two-step model, and um, restrictions on firearms purchases follows that two-step model. And there are mild criminal sanctions, or as in this case, civil designations, that locate a degree of risk and then proceed from locating the degree of risk to calibrating the level of restrictions on behavior. And that's followed in criminal statutes and civil statutes with that two-step model of trying to head off truly bad behavior before it actually occurs, and to calibrate restrictions on behavior to risk posed by historic behavior. That's, that's just grist for the mill in terms of the state legislative process in all kinds of contexts. Judge Wilkinson, that's what
10: we think the interdiction statute does here. And I would like to touch on some of the statistics. Can I just follow up on that for
11: one second and to go back to my friend Judge Keenan's question. Are you familiar with any other Virginia, since these these two-step procedures are so widely known to everybody and everything, any other statute in which you would have this baked-in enhancement for non-criminal conduct at the beginning, a criminal enhancement? I, I just didn't, I, 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 you have exactly the same conduct and you don't have a penalty where you would go to maybe to jail for a year. And then because of the interdiction statute, exactly the same conduct, you do face a
10: penalty for one year. Judge Mons I'm not aware of one immediately. I don't have one in front of me. What I would say is- I think
11: that we would know about it. We know a lot about criminal enhancements
10: because of all the federal statutes dealing with them, don't Judge, we? Judge Mott, what I would say about this situation and why it likely is used here is because of what Judge Gregory pointed out to me at the beginning of the argument about the sort of unique nature that alcohol functions in our society, both that it is socially acceptable as a general matter, but it carries a high degree of risk.
11: Well, you know, I take take your point on that, but driving a car also (laughs) imposes a high degree of risk. I mean, I I don't really see that as a as a particularly that, driving, that drinking alcohol is any more dangerous than driving a car. Certainly when I'm driving a
10: car, I'm terrified of these other drivers.
6: Well,
10: <laughs> Judge Motz, I mean, the Constitution recognizes that alcohol is different. It does give the states near complete authority over how that regulated. And we do think that explains. Well, the states regulate driving, too. But there are far more restrictions, <laughs> I would think, on our ability to do so. Than
11: well, I don't know. You have, really have like to have a to license alcohol. to drive a car. You don't have to have a license to drink. except. Uh,
9: Yeah, counsel, why why wouldn't you give the example to Judge Motz of 922 G4, right? The adjudication of a mental defect prohibits your possession of a firearm, right? So that, like, I mean, that's what 922 G4 stands for, is a two-step process. If you've been adjudicated anywhere, state or federal court, of having a mental defect, whatever that means, we could talk about the vagueness there, but that has not been a problem applied otherwise because it's a civil proceeding. And in that context, you're criminalized. Sometimes quite significantly under 922 G four, for having possessed a firearm, no different than the legal possession of alcohol.
10: Judge Richardson, my apologies for not providing that answer. I actually understood Judge Montes' questions to be about Virginia law specifically, which i I just happen to be more familiar than the federal criminal law. But I, that does sound like what we have here. Well, if well, it does, then why is it
3: an <laughs> unavoidable consequence that someone with a mental defect is going to possess a gun? How is that? How does that follow? Judge, Wayne, clearly, I- if you're an alcoholic. It, you know you're going to possess alcohol. It's an unavoidable consequence. But how is having a mental defect, being an una, uh, uh, possessing a gun,
10: an unavoidable consequence of, of having a mental defect? Judge Wynn, in some sense, my answer is a product of the nature of which this case is coming to the court. Rules doesn't that
3: distinguish sick. that from this case?
10: Maybe, Your Honor, but what if, if somebody came to court and alleged that their mental illness compelled them to possess guns? There could be somebody out there who has a mental... Uh, affinity for them, and they would allege that, and we'd be right back here. You would have to prove it at trial, and here they would have to prove the compulsion at the court were to remand the case, because we do think that's at most what can happen here is a remand to see if these particular But we wouldn't be
3: talking about individuals. We wouldn't be talking about a class of people in that particular, unless we went and had psychiatry identify there is a group of people out here who just have a mental illness about possessing guns. And as a result of the mental illness of possessing guns, which probably could be a very broad definition, you understand that, don't you? Possessing guns, if you think that's a mental illness, you could, you could spend that pretty much. And then the possession of it alone would be criminalized. That's not unavoidable.
10: <laughs> when that's sort of the same situation here. They've alleged a class, they haven't proven a class, but there isn't currently a class here yet. It's still individuals, in, in that case, it would be individuals. But they could try to prove a class. They would simply have to make.
3: We it. do accept that they are homeless people, and that homeless people, by definition, means they don't have a home,
10: don't we? That that is certainly what they've alleged, Ron. I have no and reason to doubt that. And that's the group of people
3: out. who's before us right now. Those are the plaintiffs before us, and they are saying it's because of that very status that they are un, and, 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 and the habitual uh, drunk status that. Coupled with the fact they're homeless, that's why it's an involuntary act that's being committed as a result of an unavoidable consequence of of being a
10: a habitual drunk. Judge Wynn, that's their allegation, but I don't understand then why they haven't challenged the public drunkenness or intoxication element of the statute because it covers that exact same claim. Because you you would agree with that. You think
1: the the 922G4 would be the same example that Judge Keenan gave you? In that case, a prohibited person in terms of being charged would have the same penalty, wouldn't they?
10: Judge Gregory, I have to confess I don't know that much about 922 G4, so my answer to Judge Richardson was, no, but was sounded Judge King like- was
1: talking about someone who would be guilty of a crime, which would be uh, drunkenness in public or drinking in public, then facing that. But then you'd have to be a prohibitive person to be a comparator there, wouldn't you? It's not just the fact, yeah, you outlabel that makes you prohibited, but a person who would stand... Uh, criminal punishment would be just like you, a person prohibited. But here, you'd be charged as a person possession alcohol, and you could only get a $250 fine as opposed to an indicted, uh, interdicted person would be uh, up to 12 months. So it's not quite apples and apples in I, that example.
10: Judge Gregory, I, I have to take your word for it because I don't know enough about the statute. Don't you don't need to. It. It's
1: just the, uh, Judge Richardson gave you the example, and you thought that was a complete
10: comparative, but it's quite it's not really. Judge Gregory, if I said it's a complete comparator, I misspoke. I said it sounded like it. That's what I thought oh, oh,
6: I okay. myself yeah, right. said. But. I suppose you can have a situation, too, like here, where the civil designation is used to resolve any ambiguity in the criminal statute. Because the whole idea of vagueness is to put someone on notice of um, impermissible behavior and behavior that can be criminalized. And here, the designation serves that very purpose. In other words, the the civil designation saves and rescues the criminal prohibition from vagueness by putting the individual on notice um, that that further behavior um, can be subject to criminal sanctions and it puts the individual on notice without the imposition of criminal sanctions itself.
10: Judge Wilkinson, that's what the statute does, and that goes to my point from earlier. The Commonwealth's goal here is not to just lock up these individuals, it is to try to encourage people to stop abusing alcohol and to get treatment. I see my time has long since it's expired, Judge Gregory. Right. Yes, there are further questions from the court.
1: Thank you, Ms. McGuire. Mr. Marcus, you have some time
2: reserved. Thank you, Your Honor. <laughs> this this Virginia interdiction statute is materially indistinguishable from the statute invalidated in Robinson. Virtually all Virginians of age are able to engage in this conduct, in the possession of alcohol. The only ones who cannot are those who have been designated habitual drunkards. And the only people who cannot avoid the habitual drunkard designation are homeless alcoholics. That's our claim that punishing a homeless alcoholic is no different from punishing a a homeless alcoholic possessing alcohol over and over again, which is what we allege in the complaint. There's no meaningful difference. Uh, the the state talks about, well, you could bring up the irresistible impulse defense in individual cases. The problem with that is it doesn't address the systemic problem. Uh, our clients are getting arrested, prosecuted multiple times in, in one year. So to for every single case to try to bring up that up, that misses the larger picture. Can I ask you This just, is a status crime.
7: Let me yeah. just, I just want to go back to sort of the very first couple of sentences out of your mouth, and it was that only homeless alcoholics can avoid being interdicted. Does it matter whether the only is right? Isn't it sufficient for your claim that whatever the reach of this statute, whether or not it might affect people who are not homeless, it is clear that as to homeless alcoholics, there is no volitional conduct here. They have to be in public and they have to drink. Isn't that enough for you to win your case? Why do we need the only?
2: Well, I think it it, it is, I mean, it is enough to win win our case and certainly enough to win under, the approach in uh, the if you, the five the five views in the Powell decision, where um, Justice White, along with four dissenters, made it very clear that if someone could show that they were homeless and addicted to alcohol, they couldn't be convicted of public intoxication, which is a generally applicable crime, and that's an open question. And and that so we certainly under that under that approach, yes, we 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 win under that approach. But even under uh, but, even
7: but, under the states' reading of the White concurrence and White's. Um, narrow agreement with the the majority plurality, Justice Marshall opinion. The state understands the rule to come out of those five justices to be there must be some volitional conduct. And I understood that your argument was that as to your clients, there is no volitional conduct. And I just don't understand why that has to be true only as to your mm. clients for you I, to win. I,
2: I, I guess what I'm saying is, if the court the court could adopt a narrower principle, that that is enough for us to win our case under under the principle you're articulating. But the court could adopt a narrower principle and say and say that um, in this case, this this clearly does only trap the um, the the homeless alcoholics, and therefore um, there there are no concerns about applying this. You know that, that there would be some slippery slope would would apply. To allowing a compulsion defense to a generally applicable crime, and and your resistance
0: to that—I appreciate that because that was sort of the conceptual difficulty I was having with your argument earlier on. In your resistance to the distinction that Judge Harris is making, can you can you elaborate on that a little? What makes you nervous about what her suggestion? Right, because mine
7: would the 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 what I. Really, I'm just reading from the state's brief. There has to be something volitional, even on the narrowest reading. Um, and I don't understand why the, the homeless only thing help sort of matters to your position, because either way, this isn't a generally applicable law. That,
2: that's correct, Your Honor. It's, to, it's, it's narrowly targeted either way, whether right. it only applies to homeless Let's alcoholics. just assume it's narrowly whether, targeted
7: a f- at alcoholics.
2: Or whether, a few, whether some other, other individuals are, are right. sort of swept into the right. net. It's overwhelmingly right applies
4: to the homeless, the alcoholic population. The difficulty yeah. you encounter if you buy that argument is then you are raising an affirmative defense. It doesn't go to the invalidity of the statute. In other words, the statute uh, uh, would address this conduct, and if the, generally the statute allows uh, uh, prosecutions, then. Uh, your clients would have to make the affirmative defense that it wasn't volitional and carry the day on that and meet the standard that Virginia's defined uh, for that purpose.
11: No, I thought that the the input of the question was it wasn't constitutionalist to anyone.
4: Well, that's what, uh, he's just changing his mind. No. (laughs) Um, Your Honor, I think under the. Homeless
11: or not, isn't that what you said in response to my colleague?
4: Yes, yes. It's yes. Not I thought you said it was, it was only homeless. No. Words, and now, if, when in response to if Judge Harris's question, she proposed the notion that uh, it doesn't have to be so with respect to everybody, but it's respect to your clients, which means your clients have to raise an affirmative defense. It doesn't validate the statute. I don't Do you think, I, think it that was, was the only
0: volitional with? Re- didn't you say that it was only volitional with respect? Because I, that's how... I thought I understood your answer but apparently one of us didn't. So okay. it's probably no, it's, me.
2: it's not I mean well, it's not volition, right, it's not volitional conduct. Um, and that's and I and I guess what I'm saying is there are two different ways you could look at this. Um, we think this this statute is targeting designed to target homeless alcoholics. You, you have and, a
11: particularly uh, a, a client that has a particularly affected here. But yes. I thought in response, yes. and I really would, I think yes. we'd all appreciate a yes. clear answer to this question. Yes. I thought in response to Judge Harris's question, you acknowledged that this was unconstitutional, in your view, with respect to everyone, whether you're homeless uh, if, or not.
2: If it's non um yes. If, if it's non-volitional, yes, it would be. And under, under, yes, Robinson would still support that, and Powell, the five, See, the I, five I votes feel in Powell. Yeah, counsel,
6: the, anything, I counsel, one thing I... I've listened very carefully, and I really can't see anything that you've said today that is is really very narrow. Mm -hmm. It all seems to me to have rather broad implications, and whether we're talking about civil vagueness or whether we're talking about um, uh, disparate impact targeting, to me, is just a code word in a sense for um, disparate impact or whether we're talking about non-volitional conduct and irresistible impulses and the like, all of that seems to me to be uncabined and loose and not to admit readily or easily to any kind of discernible limiting principle. One thing you can say about Robinson is that it establishes a clear rule. We know what it is and the states have abided and Virginia's abided by it because it hasn't criminalized status in any way, shape, or form.
2: Well, I, I don't, Your Honor, with respect, I don't think Virginia has identified any parallel to this provision, and, and we have not identified we t- any other states. We talked about Utah at the last case, that Utah might be the one other state that prohibits possession by uh, habitual drunkards. We've looked at that more closely again, and there actually is a distinction in Utah law between habitual drunkards and interdicted persons. So the prohibition on interdicted persons from possessing does not appear to include habitual drunkards. So it does appear that Virginia is the only state. It's an outlier. It's a, a total outlier. Um, and so that's not consistent with contemporary standards. And, um, and, th- and therefore, uh, we think it is an Eighth Amendment violation. Um, and uh, we request that the court um, reverse. Thank you,
3: Mr. Yeah. Marcus. Thanks.
2: We will.
1: Have the clerk to, uh, I guess, I uh, guess, recess the court. We'll come down and greet
3: counsel.
0: This honorable court will take a brief recess.